Living in a free society in the 21st century presents us with a difficult conundrum. We have our laws and our customs and so on, no doubt. There are opportunities in our society for self-development and productive living. We have gyms and jujitsu classes, libraries and universities, lines of credit to start a business. But there are a lot of routes to debauchery, waste and addiction. How many more liquor stores are there than gyms and libraries? Sex is now more or less available to people with the swipe of a finger, and foods of impossible richness and sweetness are everywhere. We're no better equipped to resist these than rats are to lick sucrose water from a bottle in their cage. It takes a lot of self-discipline to make it in a society such as this one. But to what extent is our culture pushing us in that direction? Intellectual pursuits have the same status here as trivial hobbies and entertainments, Nobody expects us to be in good physical shape. As long as we follow the law and show up for work, nobody is much troubled with whether or not we are moderate, healthy, and well-read. In fact, let's face it, the rest of society would prefer you to be fat, stupid, and addicted. At least that way, other people don't feel judged and inadequate when they are fat, stupid, and addicted themselves. Don't get me wrong here, friends. I'm pretty fat, stupid, and addicted myself. To one degree or another, though, I'm working on it. Even if you all won't accuse me of intemperance and ignorance, my own conscience will do so with gusto. In his book, The Science of Evil, psychologist Simon Baron Cohen establishes a spectrum of empathy into which people fall that takes the shape of a bell curve. Where an individual falls on this spectrum, like so many aspects of psychological temperament, is determined by nature as well as nurture. Baron Cohen describes those at the far left side of the curve as having zero degrees of empathy. These include people with borderline personality disorder, psychopaths, and narcissists. He calls these the zero negative forms. The zero positive forms are on the autistic spectrum, including people with Asperger's syndrome. The difference between zero negative and zero positive is that zero positive people only lack the cognitive portion of empathy. They still have affective empathy, so they can still feel empathy, just like the rest of us can, but it doesn't happen in situations where the rest of us would be likely to experience it. On zero negative types, Baron Cohen writes, quote, zero degrees of empathy means you have no awareness of how you come across to others, how to interact with others, or how to anticipate their feelings and reactions. Your empathy mechanism functions at level zero. You feel mystified by why relationships don't work out, and your lack of empathy creates a deep-seated self-centeredness. Other people's thoughts and feelings are just off your radar. This leaves you doomed to do your own thing, in your own little bubble, not just oblivious to other people's feelings and thoughts, but also oblivious to the idea that there might even be other points of view. The consequence is that you believe 100% in the rightness of your own ideas and beliefs and judge anyone who does not hold your beliefs as wrong or stupid. Zero degrees of empathy is ultimately a lonely kind of existence, a life at best misunderstood, at worst condemned as selfish. It means you have no brakes on your behavior, leaving you free to pursue any object of your desires or to express any thought in your mind without considering the impact of your actions or words on any other person. In the extreme case, your lack of empathy might lead you to commit murder or rape." Unquote. Simon Baron Cohen describes an empathy circuit in the brain as discovered by fMRI studies. These are 10 interconnected regions of the brain, including areas in the medial prefrontal cortex, the cingulate cortex, the amygdala, and others. These are active when normal people are empathizing, 
but less so, as you might expect, in psychopaths, borderline, and autistic subjects. In general, women are higher in empathy than men, and this has been shown in the differential activity of the empathy circuit, as well as specific anatomical differences between the male and female brain. An empathy circuit is something added to a biological system which lacks it. It is a piece of equipment which endows its possessor with further functionality. But this equipment could work either by increasing some capacity in the factory conditions or by constraining some capacity. I suppose the question is this, is the psychopath capable of doing something which the normie can't do, or is the reverse true? In terms of behavior, the psychopath is certainly capable of doing things the rest of us would not. But this is only because the psychopath is incapable of certain kinds of feeling. What we feel then constrains what we are capable of doing. There's a will inside of us which moves toward fulfillment. What fulfills the will depends upon its values. This is a mystery, the nature of the values, but given the values, the will moves accordingly. Some feelings, perceptions, thoughts, and so on, compel the will to move. Others prevent it doing so. There are constraints on both sides, and they add up and subtract down to form the expected behavioral outcome. These are the functions of hungers and pains, fears and desires. If this is the case, then the will is not free, right? The will is coerced on all sides into its particular moves. But there is a conundrum here. Why should there be a will at all? Billiard balls needn't be convinced to move of their own accord toward the pockets. They are moved by force. So in the reductionist sense, the whole universe, right down to detailed human action, just reacts according to previous causes like falling dominoes. So then, what is the nature of the will? I said before that the will moves toward fulfillment of values. The values are nothing more than preferences. If there are no values, then the will does not move, or so I shouldn't think it does. What if we take the opposite tack, one of total free will? Suppose the will, in its independent nature, is totally free, but being independent of everything, the will has no values as well as no constraints, and so it does no work. If the evolved organ organism is to make use of the will, then this will not do. There must be a fundamental value, and I think it is brought about in the form of suffering. Suffering is badness by definition. Its meaning is this. Staying here is bad. Thus, the will moves. If there is still suffering, then there is still further movement. A nervous system capable of producing a willful consciousness and of causing it to suffer can make use of it. Why not the opposite? Why not make pleasure and therefore goodness the lever by means of which to compel the will to move? Because pleasure means stay here. You might think that pleasure draws you in its direction, but how can that be? You cannot be made to experience a future state, only the state you are in. So rather than pleasure, you could be compelled by desire for pleasure, which is another kind of suffering, as Schopenhauer has taught us. Desire requires a more complex nervous system, one which makes consciousness aware of more than its present condition. Perception is key to this complexity. With more information on hand, we are able to more accurately see the trade-offs of taking a given action or not taking it. David Hume said that reason is the slave of the passions. The evolutionary psychologist Robert Wright wrote in a book titled Why Buddhism is True, quote, Science is catching up with Hume. It has developed tools to peer into our motivational machinery to see which parts of the brain are active when we make decisions. And Hume's ideas about the relationship of reason to feeling, long considered radical, are looking pretty good. Consider a decision as straightforward as whether to buy something. 
It's tempting to think of this as an exercise in rational deliberation. You look at the product and the price, and then you ask yourself a series of questions. How much would you use the product? Would the purchase take a big chunk of your cash? What else could you buy with that money? After answering such questions, you coolly weigh the factors for and against the purchase and decide. But weighing factors may not be so cool after all, according to an experiment done by cognitive scientists at Stanford, Carnegie Mellon, and MIT. They gave people real money and offered them a series of things to buy. Wireless headphones, an electric toothbrush, a Star Wars DVD, and so on. As these people were shown each product, and then its price, their brains were being scanned. It turned out researchers could do a good job of predicting whether someone would purchase something by watching which, which parts of the brain got more active and which got less active. And none of these were parts of the brain mainly associated with rational deliberation. Rather, they were parts associated with feelings. Like, for example, the nucleus accumbens, which plays a role in doling out pleasure and gets more active when people anticipate rewards or see things they like. The more active the nucleus accumbens while subjects were looking at a product, the more likely they were to buy it. On the other hand, there's the insula, which gets especially active when people anticipate pain and other unpleasant things. The more active the insula got when people were shown the price, the less likely they were to buy the product. Though weighing the pros and cons of a purchase sounds like a purely rational, even mechanical act, this experiment suggests that the way the brain actually does the weighing is through a contest of conflicting feelings. Even the factor of price, a purely quantitative index, the kind of thing that is easily fed into a computer's decision-making algorithm, ultimately enters the equation in the form of a feeling, a degree of aversion. And the stronger feeling, attraction or aversion, wins." Unquote. All of this says that feelings in the form of suffering coerce the will to move. Since we are capable of memory, it's also useful to coerce the will by delivering a brief exposure to pleasure when a biological or social objective is obtained. This will function as positive reinforcement. Notice, though, that the will is capable of movement. Suppose you are the mind of a simpler organism, one which perceives an environment, can suffer, and is capable of voluntary movement. Though the organism is pretty simple, it has evolved over a long period of time under the pressure of natural selection. Let's have it be some kind of little sea-dwelling critter. Selection has tinkered with the brain in the direction which favors eating tiny algae and staying warm. Let's suppose that this is more or less its entire project in life. A feeling of suffering is produced in the mind by coldness, as reported by thermoreceptors on its surface, and by hunger, as reported by internal molecular signals of energy depletion. Also, a map of the environment is produced by sensors on the animal surface. Hell, let's make them simple eyes. Moreover, the organism is capable of associational learning. Just like us, it cannot actually experience the temperature of the water or the lack of food directly. Nevertheless, just like us, its brain is able to produce affective experiences in accordance with those facts. This organism is capable of something of its own psychology. It learns that seeing darkness feels miserably cold and feeling lightness feels nourishingly warm, so it keeps itself moving upward toward the surface of the water. If a current drags it downward, pain in the depths compels it to move away, and it has learned to move away from the pain in the direction of the light. A different pain compels it to consume algae, because it learns to associate the cessation of suffering with the munching of its food, and it learns to find food by the way it looks in the environment. If it is suffering a lot with hunger, it will even dive down into the darker depths in search of food. So you can say that it now desires food and warmth when all it really does is suffers 
cold and hunger. Only one ultimate value is thus required for a will that can move, not to suffer. For the sake of this illustration, the organism is endowed with total freedom of the will, but all it knows is what it can see and what it can suffer, thus its behaviors are predictable to an outside observer. I want to briefly speculate on the idea of the will as something which can move. I do not mean move like the way we move our limbs. We don't move our limbs. Motor neurons do that. But we can move the neurons in the circuit that direct the limbs. Neurons don't exactly move. But ions such as sodium and potassium move across the neuronal membrane. This changes the voltage across the cell's membrane. What moves the ions? Physical forces. Since the ions have a charge, they are subject to electromagnetic forces. According to my theory, a conscious entity is an integrated complex of electromagnetic causality. Obviously, incoming signals from the outside world and internal signals around the brain influence the conscious entity by means of electromagnetic activity. It takes the form of afferent neuronal projections. Likewise, the brain's motor systems are influenced to take action by means of electromagnetic activity inside of the integrated complex directing efferent projections to the body's muscles. So if the will is conscious control of motion, then that motion occurs in the electromagnetic field structure that makes up the conscious entity. Movements occur within the entity itself, not outside of it. But movements within it can influence what is outside of it, just as movements of a cue ball can direct the eight ball into the corner pocket. Clearly, I have not explained how the will could conceivably move matter. I have only narrowed down the problem. We are not dealing with a mental realm somehow making miraculous contact with a physical realm. All of this is taking place within the physical universe, and all of it is clearly mediated by the brain, but there is a piece of the puzzle glaringly missing from deterministic materialism. The clues are right in front of us, in the facts of conscious being and its phenomenology. Consider what it's really like to be you. You are simply not a receptacle for feeling or a witness to perceptions. You are an actor in the world. Either that or you are subject to a conspiracy to make you think that you are an actor in the world. You actually do quite a lot. Every moment of the day, you take action with the body. You think and speak and respond. But you do more than that. You move the mind toward thoughts and words and imaginings. Feelings affect you. These you don't direct. Feelings function to push you in different directions. They make it either attractive to advance along a particular line of thinking, or they make it unattractive. You can think against the feelings, but you don't like to. You are repelled. And flights of fancy draw you into their orbit like sirens. But all of that begs the critical question. Why should the feelings entice or repel you in your process of thinking and acting if you have no power over thoughts or actions. You're an actor in the world. There are two lines of protest leviable against this claim as I see it. The claim is that consciousness of a human brain acts in the world. This means necessarily that consciousness is causal in a physical sense. So the two protests are, one, consciousness is not causal because the universe is deterministic. And two, Consciousness is not causal because we only think that we make decisions when in actuality decisions are made by the brain's modules at a subconscious level. Both of these arguments have evidence to recommend them. Objection number one. Consciousness is not causal 
because the universe is physically determined. The firing behavior that directs movements of the muscles, for example, is driven by material forces. Those forces are driven by material forces, which are driven by material forces, and so on, all the way back to the Big Bang. This means that consciousness is epiphenomenal. It makes no difference what you feel or think or perceive. These must be side effects of the mechanisms of brain operation. The die is cast, and the outcome for every particle in space and time unfurls like a sequence of dominoes. Well, and there are some probabilistic variables as revealed by quantum mechanics too, but these are random. The problem with this account is that it is based upon empirical facts which are objective and thus cannot accommodate consciousness. Fine, that's, that's good, except that there is consciousness. I know that I am real with a force of certainty that exceeds my certainty that the objective world is real, and so do you. Given that conviction, it's pretty odd to discard a certainty in order to preserve a postulate. For what it's worth, I am convinced that the objective universe does exist, and it is describable by scientific and mathematical methods. So reflecting on the nature of consciousness as producing experienced values, I end up concluding that conscious will operates in the universe, and our task is to figure out how it does that, rather than if it does so. Objection 2. Consciousness is not causal because we only think that we make decisions, when in actuality decisions are made in the brain's modules at a subconscious level. Psychological experiments show that we make decisions all the time for reasons that are unknown to us. Furthermore, we confabulate reasons to justify the decisions we've made. So the sense that we have acted according to our own free will is an error. The problem here is that, as we saw in the example I read to you before about negative and positive feelings underlying purchasing decisions, the means of directing our choices is by coercing us with feelings. This demonstrates the exact opposite of the purported objection. It isn't that the brain does an algorithmic calculation of what is best. Rather, we, its mind, suffer the pangs of desire and aversion. Whole circuits and structures in the brain have evolved to make us feel motivation, desire, disgust, anger, fear, anxiety, and love. What for? The answer is obvious. Consciousness has causal power. Oddly enough, I started this episode on the topic of empathy. What the hell does all of this about the will as movement have to do with empathy? Our little sea-dwelling animal had none and had no need of any. Not at least unless it has a complex social environment intermixed with competition and cooperation. We didn't give it such a lifestyle, so we'll leave that aside. Empathy is a feeling that serves a pro-social function. Presumably, our ancestors had a need for reciprocation and cooperation. But there's more to empathy than that. Our ancestors also had to negotiate with other people, to manipulate one another, to apply a theory of mind to other people, allies as well as rivals. In the earlier passage, I shared something from Simon Baron Cohen on what he calls the zero-negative form of lacking empathy. The zero refers to the degrees of empathy according to a scale he described. The negative is the selfishness and cruelty occurring in people with borderline, psychopathy, and narcissism. On the other hand, Baron Cohen tells us about zero positive people, those with autistic syndromes. These individuals have high degrees of systemizing capacity. They demand order and clarity, and this can lead to certain talents, but they have little or no capacity to function normally in the social world. Here, Baron Cohen writes about a guy named Michael, who has Asperger's syndrome. He writes, quote, 
At university, he studied math because he felt it was the only truly factual subject in which things were either true or false. But he kept to himself. He was hoping that all the years of loneliness during his school days would be behind him when he got to university. And he hoped, for the first time in his life, that he would feel accepted by others, to fit in and feel as if he belonged. Sadly, this didn't happen. Other students seemed to socialize together effortlessly, but he had no idea what to talk to them about. Their conversations still seemed like butterflies flitting randomly from one flower to another, whereas he preferred conversations that progressed along logically linked linear paths, a series of facts or assertions that followed clearly from the previous step. When people suddenly switched topics or introduced humor or sarcasm or metaphor or even worse, body language, he was immediately lost. He noticed that other people seemed to communicate through their eyes, not their words and that they seem to know what each other means or what they are saying. He didn't have a clue how they did this mysterious thing. He dropped out of college because he was becoming depressed, even suicidal, as a result of loneliness. He moved back to his parents' home at age 22, spending all day alone in his bedroom and refusing to even have mealtimes with his family. He is now unemployed because he finds interacting with people so stressful. He keeps to himself during the day. His dream is to live in a world without people, where he can have total control. Michael has zero degrees of empathy because as he readily confesses, he has no idea what others are thinking or feeling or how to respond to someone else's feelings." Unquote. These zero empathy conditions give me a sense of what human psychology might be like if we were solitary creatures. It's remarkable to appreciate how much the contingencies of our evolutionary past determine our values today. Perhaps the feelings of which natural selection can avail itself are unchangeable, but under what conditions would those feelings present themselves? They could be the complete reverse of what we experience now in our present state. We might be not only capable of torture and murder, of rape and pillage, but endowed with the warmest and most uplifting emotions as we did so. We might know that our actions were just and beautiful with the same conviction that we now know the justice and beauty of loving our own children. Mm -hmm.